0: I think it is one of the most important things that human beings do is make art. And in the book, I talk about um, human magic because I think that it actually is magic. We're super, super casual about that, that there are people who make things out of nothing.
1: Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain, and today I'm speaking with author, artist, and designer George McCallman. The book begins with this line I had a curiosity. In the introduction of his book, George goes on to say, I was curious to know black history better than I already did, and I was also curious to see if I was an artist. This conversation is so rich. It is about so many things. George's book was several years in the making before he knew that it would or could be a book. A lot of good things start this way without foreknowledge or planning. This conversation is about that curious fact. This book is testament to the idea that it is a good thing to be curious and that a lot can happen at the intersections of our various curiosities. I am proof of that, because my art, what I say on my Substack newsletter, also this podcast and each conversation on it, is born at the intersection of different curiosities. George and I speak about the modern pressure to appear as a finished product before your audience, a fully formed brand ready to be consumed and labeled and tagged. We do not have much patience for this idea. The heroes in George's book defied their environments and took charge of their lives in big and small ways. This conversation is about doing that. This is an episode about following your own compass. With your efforts and skills and curiosities to construct the monument of your life and give it meaning. I hope you enjoy the episode. Mm. Hello, George, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to speak with you today.
0: Nishant, it is a pleasure to be here. I have been looking forward to this. and um, Yeah, and I'm looking forward to having, I mean, I would say chopping it up with you. So mm-hmm. so I'll just say, looking forward to chopping it up with you.
1: Let's do that. <laughs> your Your book, George begins with my favorite sentence, I think, for the start of a book. It begins with, I had a curiosity. Mm -hmm. I love that word so much. And I love that you gave it the space in its own sentence without adding a lot of qualifiers to that. Yes. Curiosity for me has been at the root of everything. And I'm delighted to see that it's at the root of your book as well.
0: Um, You know, the whole introduction is is about that. Uh, And I... One of the people who wrote a testimonial for the book, uh, what they call blurbs, um, is an author, uh, one of my favorite writers, and an author of great renown by the name of Hilton Alls. And I remember when I sent him the digital galley so that he could see the book, this was ahead of it being printed. He sent me back a note telling me that it was one of the the more audacious introductions he had read and he said you wrote about everything that you're not supposed to write about he's like it's a what do you say he said it was a bold declaration that you are exposing basically the vulnerability of creating and they tell you that you're not supposed to do that and that you have made this book about your vulnerability in making the book is what makes this book unique. And that, I mean, I don't know any other way to be. So, uh, but when he sent that to me, it reflected something that I think I take for granted that everybody thinks this way, but most people don't think that way.
1: (laughs) That's so true. I think it's so beautifully put because... Uh, That's that's sort of the most beautiful summation of what the feelings that I had from reading your introduction chapter, which was that you are you are indeed sharing the why and the how and all the hesitations around making the book. Mm -hmm. And there is this uh, notion or prevailing idea that we should appear as these finished pieces before society. Yes,
0: yes. And I, I just fundamentally disagree with that philosophy, and my whole career right now is just a testament to that disagreement. You know, I, I think that what I do is not about the finishes. And I'm, I'm, I run a design studio, I run a branding and design studio. And so I'm, I in terms of what I do, I task myself on a daily basis um, to solve other people's problems. Basically, I, I am a problem solver uh, professionally, and that takes many forms. It is I devise the visual language for my client collaborators and I spend a lot of time thinking through the process to end up with a result that they can use. but any anyone who works with me knows that my philosophy is that the process is more important than the solution which you know a lot of people don't want to hear that and a lot of clients would not want to work with that you know as a general reminder but i believe and i am firm in that with everyone that anyone who works with me has to understand that that is the path we are taking together and that the the process of understanding the context and the reasons and the rationale and the emotion and the 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 motives that is what is going to lead to a finish that is going to be functional for and and hopefully magical for the people that it's serving
2: yeah
1: and and you mention it not this idea not being you know given its due credit and its due value and of course there's from the end of people who who only want the finished product there's that there's that sense of why they would think this way, but even as creatives, I feel like irrespective of generation, no matter how much we move forward, this idea of appearing like a product of appearing finished and not you know hiding your vulnerabilities mm-hmm. it's such a it's such a big compul- you know compulsion that we feel
0: i agree i agree um even even the word i'm gonna go go back to something you said earlier because it is my thinking about process even lands in conversations I have with creative people like this word creative I don't use it in my vocabulary at all I think it's a non-word and I think it means nothing Um, it just is a tech word that has somehow proliferated and it and a lot of tech words have no meaning you know there's no context for the word product. Everyone uses it. There's no context for the word content. Mm-hmm. Everyone uses it. But those words all have meaning. And, and the, the meaning has somehow been inversed to serve this kind of blank canvas of creativity that's not really creativity. And so even, you know, um, I, I was doing a, an interview about a month ago and, and when the interview asked me something about me being a creative. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what that means. I was like, can you tell me what that means? And they couldn't. That's like, well, that's, that's what I'm saying. You don't even know what it means and you are using it in a sentence. And then we got to talk about it. And to me, that's the process. And I was like, I'm not asking you to change your language. I'm just reflecting to you that there are holes in the plot of our conversation and that's my job as a as an information engineer to reflect that to myself to the people i'm working with to my clients to the audience my job is to look at the fusion of words and images and reflect what doesn't make sense sometimes on the road to what makes sense
2: yeah
1: absolutely i i love the phrase information engineer uh Now, uh, I came to becoming an artist and becoming a writer from a very long path. I studied to be an engineer. I Mm. got a master's degree. I spent a lot of time around numbers, working Uh with numbers, working with data. Uh And my path to becoming an artist was informed by the science and the engineering and the information that I had worked with. And this idea of sharing information with the world is very core to how i see what i do as an artist for example mm-hmm. and it's uh i feel like especially from your work what i'm seeing is this uh, your your willingness to use words and art both as an exploration of your thoughts and thinking about the the balance between the two in being able to say certain things it's reflected so beautifully also in the notion of how you go on to define history uh-huh. and the idea of history not simply being these words that we have to memorize and this data that we have to memorize, yes. but seeing it even in the lines of somebody's face when yes. you draw them.
0: Yes, yes. Um, you know, one of my greatest inspirations just generally, and I, I wouldn't say that I was always aware of this, but living in Northern California, it's something that's all around me and it's helped to move my education about it forward is nature. Nature is, you know, people talk about inspirations and they're like this artist and that artist. The truth is there are very few artists that are my actual inspiration. I can, I can name them and it's not going to be the people that anyone would think. Um, and so it's not other artists who inspire me. It's the natural world that inspires me. I am inspired by the color palettes of um, parks and trees. And I I find my color story in nature. And I am someone who has to select colors and make decisions and pair colors and define palettes on a daily basis. And the truth is, I steal it from nature. It's It's not a television show. It's not... It's not a, a packaging. It's not, it's not man-made. It is, it is uh, naturally made. And, and it took me a long time to be able to articulate that to myself. I knew it wasn't everyday things. It wasn't the patterns in clothes. Like By the time I am dressed, I already have a sense of the color story. I'm not inspired by fashion. I am not inspired by what other people wear. Um, I think it's beautiful. <laughs> Fashion is beautiful, and but it's the language of how people talk about it. The assumption is that everyone is inspired by the same thing. I think is nonsense. That people are inspired by a lot of things that they are not necessarily able to articulate to themselves. And and getting clear with myself about what I actually drew inspiration from. I'm, I live in a part of the world that actually inspires me. You know, I think Northern California is one of the more beautiful places on earth. And so I, I it's not something I take for granted. People talk about San Francisco and they're always like, wah, 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 wah. and the truth is San Francisco is one of the most beautiful places I have ever been to. And I get to live in the place that I am inspired by. The architecture inspires me the, the it's one of the few cities that looks like a Mediterranean city. Where color is an active part in how we all, we all have this like invisible contract that if you're living in San Francisco, your home is going to be declaratively colored. It's something that most people don't even think about. If you're living in a city, if you're living in the suburbs, your home is monotonously colored. It's going to be brown or gray or something that blends into the scenery. Here, people live in homes that there is an individual palette. You get to decide. And I'm also from a place in the world. And I'm from, I'm from the Caribbean. And that also is what I know people decide their how their home, that your living space is an extension of you in the same way that your clothes are. And I like cities where that is all around us. And, and those are all of the things that I draw from personally. Um, and so by the time I'm looking at someone's art, it's not, I have a, an appreciation, but I am rarely inspired by other people's art and with, with no disrespect to the beauty, I, I love what I see other people do, but that's not where I'm pulling my inspiration from.
1: Right. I, I think what's most like so so much to unpack here, but what's most interesting here is also uh, like coming from what you mentioned about, you know, how words mean different things to different people and words mm-hmm. in so many contexts can have so many different implications. And the more complicated a word gets, the more, the more uh, contentious it can also become. Mm-hmm. So there's this uh, person I read a little bit about uh, out of my curiosity. I read about uh, this person, Derrida. And he spoke about deconstructionalism. That's a uh-huh. very long word that I uh-huh. just managed to get right. I'm proud uh-huh. of myself. Yes, you should uh, be. <laughs> so uh, what he said was, um, so words have two kinds of meanings. Mm-hmm. Words have a, an, a, a synchronic meaning and a diachronic meaning. Uh-huh. So a synchronic meaning is what, say, let's pick a complex word. Let's pick something like inspiration or something even more loaded, like, say, mm-hmm. justice. Mm-hmm and it has a meaning that is synchronic which is the meaning that you and i agree upon today yes yes and then it has a meaning which is diachronic which is all the long history of meanings that that word has had across cultures across yes. times yes and the different ways that people have regarded what it what it means what what justice means what mm-hmm. what diversity means what mm-hmm. curiosity means mm-hmm. what success means for example mm-hmm. and that's that's sort of what I'm also eager to sort of understand the word inspiration from. Because of course, like as any human being, making art, which is an exclusively, like I I just wrote about it last week in my newsletter, that making art is the most intensely human thing you can do. It is one thing we know for sure that only we do. And we do it just for no other reason than to do it.
0: And I think we are also super casual about that as a species. We we kids are trained to appreciate art but then something gets lost along the way in understanding basically how important how important art actually is to our survival as a species that it is i think it is one of the most important things that human beings do is make art and i in, in the book i talk about um, human magic because I think that it actually is magic. We're super, super casual about that, that there are people who make things out of nothing and that that is one of our greatest exports as a species. It's not technology. It's not a lot of the things that we assume separate us. It is art that led to technology and technology will change, but art is still fundamentally the same. And that has continued all throughout human recorded and not recorded history. Um, and so we, we have this, um, being an artist myself, I, I thought of art in a very different way when I was primarily an art director. And then I started making art almost seven years ago in a regular, dedicated, concerted way. And I realized that even my thinking as an art director, I needed to throw out. And what I've come to learn has made me a better art director. It has made me a better collaborator. Um, and it's also made me a better artist. And, and in a really short amount of time, I've been able to do a lot because I am also thinking about both meanings of the word. I'm, I'm thinking about what art means to me, but I'm also thinking about what it has meant through History and how we as a species value it or don't value it. Um, value its its urgency.
1: Yeah, and and value I find is another very loaded term here because uh, it's a function of our times that the word value exclusive almost exclusively means a numerical value uh-huh. and a, a you know a wealth richness a dollar value essentially. Yes. Yes. And. Yeah. Because this is such a convenient way to parse so much of the, to make sense of so much uh-huh. of the world and give importance to things. Yes. It, it, it is naturally also extended to art. And I'm very keen to explore what we were just, what you were just saying about, you know, how we give value to art in our world, what place it has in our world. I mm-hmm. recently read this really lovely uh, article about Chinua Achebe, and he was talking about Igbo and Nigerian traditions around, around making art. Mm-hmm. and he was uh it's an incredible detour from what i was initially going for uh going to ask you about but let's do this because it's fun <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was talking about uh this festival this annual festival to the earth goddess which the name of which has completely escaped me mm-hmm. and he was talking about how uh to begin this festival the priests would go and knock on people's doors and select people from Oops. the village who would become artists for uh-huh. the duration of this uh-huh. festival. Uh-huh. And then these uh, non-artists, so to say, these people who are not otherwise professionally artists, so to say, uh, for lack of a better word, they engage in the process of making art for their community to celebrate the earth goddess. Mm hmm. And this is a process that takes many weeks and months. And throughout this process, they live apart from the rest of society, from the rest, from, from the rest of their duties and obligations and responsibilities. Yes. They are just doing this tribute. And it culminates with uh, the creation of their work, their tribute, and everybody in the village passes through it and experiences it. And then they return to their older lives and what happens after that is that next year or that the next festival a new set of people are chosen
2: mm-hmm.
1: who then dedicate a period of their uh, their life to creating this art piece so mm-hmm. to say like again a very very loose terrible word for this
2: yes yes but uh,
1: what he was talking about was the community engagement in art and art I not see. being something that is divorced from the population and not only the appreciation but even the creative the creation process of Mm -hmm. art and -hmm. how we have sort of divorced ourselves so much from the creation process and the more easy it becomes to see the art in the world the more difficult it becomes to start to indulge
2: Uh uh-huh
0: uh-huh yeah um you know i think about these things And I have a lot of conversations about this with my community because I am fortunate in that as an art director, I have been working with artists my whole career. And so it was something I had siphoned myself off from, but it's not something I was divorced from. Uh, But I had to dig a lot deeper when I became one because I had to think about what you were speaking about earlier, the value. I've had to come into an understanding of what I want to value my art as to myself and to other people. And it becomes, I think it's one of the hardest things that we do as artists. Um, And it's not something they teach you in school. You know, I, I went to school for art. I am a classically trained artist. And what that means, classically, Is that I went through the trade of learning how to paint, how to draw, um, how to take photographs, how to create, uh, print pieces, um, etchings. And I've, I've just, I have a really clear sense of all of the mediums that I use now. And no one teaches you this stuff until you get out into the world and then you have to make sense of it. And it becomes a dominant strain of conversation between artists who consider themselves professional artists, meaning that they are making money from their craft. It becomes this conversation where you go to the ends of the earth to try to make some form of sense to it. And I think it's because it is not engaged as a society. And so very much we find ourselves out on a life raft, out in the middle of the ocean, trying to understand who we are to ourselves and who we are to the people that are uh, patronizing our arts, people who become patrons, people who are not interested in what we're doing. There's a whole network of emotions and, uh, and understandings that we all kind of navigate through trying to figure this out. And I'm fortunate in that I had a lot of people to talk about this with as I was navigating it, because I, I work with a lot of artists. I've mentored artists. Um, I, my best friends are artists and I found myself having to kind of start a conversation that i thought i had been in for a couple of decades i realized that i was really at the bottom rung of a new staircase and i had to kind of sift through and sort through how i was going to start engaging myself and so that's one of the reasons that i my public facing self is very much exposing this as it comes back to process i i don't just want my information to be for me i want it to be for others i want other people to know that there are that they can find community to help them figure this out and we can create you know our own ecosystem
1: around it right yeah there's this phrase that i've been using uh, for the past year like uh, for the past year on my on my newsletter it's one of my resolutions of 2022 i've executed it in various ways that i'm very happy with it's that mm-hmm. i'm choosing to learn in public uh-huh, uh-huh. My, uh huh uh huh my my work as a writer as an artist as a podcaster is about putting myself out of my comfort zone because every mm-hmm. day i'm learning things none of these are things that i have formally trained in in any sense right and making myself vulnerable enough to share the things I know, the things I don't know, the things mm-hmm. that I try and then they don't work, not only mm-hmm. the things that worked out. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's been a strangely empowering journey. Like, uh-huh. it's been, like I, I, I thought that it would make me more embarrassed, but it has made me uh, more confident about yes. trying unknown things.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And I think the act of doing for us educates us about these things and you know my studio mate and I talk a lot about we are similar ages we're both in our 50s and have been we've been doing this for a while but what we find is that we're having to undo a lot of the training that we got in school because it is actually counterintuitive to our evolution as artists that this kind of intellectualizing, this European intellectualizing of art, uh, I myself, I had to basically throw that out years ago. I just, I was like, this is completely useless to me. And, and I am all for the rigor of a form of study that, you know, this, this kind of strain of thinking has pioneered. And I, I think that that is an important part but i realize how damaging it can be also if you start comparing yourself to the privilege of so many of our contemporaries where you know the invisible lines of wealth and class and race and you see how some people are treated and the success that some people have and you and you don't have it and you feel like you should have it and you want to have it but you don't know how to get it and and it and it starts this kind of spiral loop where there is a there is a caste system of how and, and in all aspects of life, there is a caste system. And that there's another way of engaging this conversation, which is more additives. Right. It is it that there is a, that there is a way we don't have to, it doesn't all have to fall under this rubric that if somehow you are not rigorous in a specific way then you don't have the chops to, you know, to advance your own career on your own terms. And I, I think one of the blessings of the internet age is that there's just more access. And that's, it has just equalized a lot of things. Uh, a kind of artistic su- success was always contingent on the invisible network of people helping each other out. Uh, and that there are museums and galleries and gallerists and curators and that have all been a part of this system, and they would not think of themselves <laughs> as as particularly bad people um but the truth is it's been a really it's been a shitty business for for a while and and that the last five to ten years has given a lot of people that would not have access that those gatekeepers have kind of moved out of the way. Um, I have an I have a success that the internet has made possible. I, I cannot lie. I am an established national artist without walking through the typical ways of doing it. And I made a conscious decision that I was not going to do it. I, I refuse. I was just like, Nope, I'm not having any gallerist tell me <laughs> whether they think my work is worthy or not. I'm not having that. I am, I'm too grown and too experienced. And I myself am a curator. And I myself am a galler. Like, I have all the same pedigree that all of these other people do. And so why am I going to, I, I, I'm bringing myself down to a baseline because I want to be a student. But I'm not starting out. And I'm not going to have anybody look over my work, look me up and down and say, no, wait your turn. I was like, basically, mm-hmm. fuck all of you. Mm-hmm. I'm not, Absolutely. I'm, yes. I'm not doing it that way. You yeah. are not going to tell me that I have to wait my turn.
1: Right. Oh, I, I could not agree more. <laughs> uh, I became an adult with the Internet uh, coming into our lives and. It's been the same way for me. Everywhere that I have gone, the only access I have had because I've been an outsider in all the things that I wanted to do. I wanted to tell stories, but there was not much of an avenue to tell stories in the world that I was growing up in. The yes. internet gave me a platform. The internet yes. made it so that people outside of my geography, people outside of my social network could potentially see my work. It, uh, even, even when I moved to the US and I decided that I was going to, I was going to become an artist, it was only because of these online communities that yes. I was able to find that yes. I, could, I could belong. Like actually, yes. even, even the idea of feeling like you have any business being here, mm-hmm. so much of it has been enabled by the unfettered access that the internet has given us, like yes. tearing down these gates. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I recently wrote about how we've been uh, conditioned to think of success as climbing this pyramid. Yes, But what's kind of happened over the last, and this might be just a factor of me becoming an adult over the last decade and a half, but what I feel that has happened over the last decade and a half is that now there are infinite pyramids. We don't have to fight amongst each other. The world and success is not a zero-sum game anymore.
0: Yeah, and and the, the kind of class structure of art too, the internet has flattened so much of that. That, you know, what capitalism and Western capitalism positions is that people have to fight each other for ascendance, that there has to be this fierce competition and it's survival of the fittest. And if you get there, then it's because you're worthy as not because of what it actually is, that you're lucky and that you happen to know the right people Mm -hmm. and that your work's okay. but it's. Like you knew, happened to knew the, know the right person, or a gallerist decided that you were worthy, or some other gatekeeper wanted to sponsor you or, or liked some, your skin color so much or liked your skin color or 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 and what it it has beautifully leveled the playing field, and I, I feel like the internet does not get enough credits that we keep talking about it as a cesspool, and I don't. I don't see it that way. I don't think of it. It is part of the human machine. We created it and we're using it in a lot of different ways that are often. Contradictory, but I think there is a really, there's a potency to how, like I would not have been able to do this book. I wouldn't have been able to do my whole career. And, and have it changed so radically in the last six, seven years without these platforms that we all kind of take for granted right now. Like I have a career that is completely the opposite of what I was doing because of that. And, and, and I know, and I haven't had to ask anyone's permission to do it. I have gone as far and near as I've needed to. I've trusted my instincts. I have been declarative with myself first. I have a lot of people that I speak to, but there's no one that can say that they are responsible for my success. And I and I don't need to individualize myself to say that because that's the other extreme that people lie about that, that that somehow they, they did it themselves. I would never say that. There's a vast community of people that are alongside of me that have allowed my success to happen. They have contributed. But the whole strata of how these things are usually happen, that that my community has been alongside me, but they have not defined my success.
1: Yeah. They they tell you there are these gods that you have to pay homage to, right? And uh I have also found that some of those gods are a little unnecessary to my life. And totally. I do
0: care to pay tribute? Unnecessary. And they're all the people that I, you know When I first started I was an art director, I knew a lot of those gods, and I decided that I did not was not going to kiss their ring. I was not <laughs> going to genuflect. I was not going to. Give them undue credit um, for basically keeping the status quo in place. Yeah, because they're the this... ones who are benefiting from it, not yeah. you or
1: I. Right. Uh, like I, I read this book recently, which was uh, came highly recommended to me. Uh, it's called "The Shock of the New," and it's about the past hundred years of well, Western art and about how things changed very quickly and the various art movements that emerged and I I liked it because there are some artists there whose work I've admired and it was good to kind of know where they came from and what they did. But I reached a point about maybe 50, 60 percent in where I started to feel what you're describing, that we are are intellectualizing something in order to give it a value. Like that's how value is created, right? Like we decide to give it value. And a lot of those decisions come to us because we trust in the decisions of people who have been called the smart ones or the critics or the curators. Yes, yes. And a lot of that kind of value is then secondhand absorbed. Like we Mm -hmm. did not decide that we love this painting so much, but Mm -hmm. everybody around me says so. The plaque on the bottom right of this uh, frame says so. Its Mm -hmm. place in this big museum says so. Mm -hmm. And therefore I have to second guess my instinct and I right. have to second guess where I am coming from in my appreciation. Right. right. It sort of, it takes us, you know, It I feel like this is the culture which has allowed so many people to divorce themselves from art, not being able, no. not feeling empowered to have your own thoughts about it and to engage with it in your own way. Yes. told so. to give value to only certain specific ideas.
0: Right. And we, you know, these words are currently under scrutiny um you know words like empowered diversity you know there's a there is a political um there are a lot of political tensions around these words but i think of them as just basic <laughs> they're just and what i mean is is not politically or culturally you know the act of empowerment is a really it's one of those words that actually is it, it it is that thing you were saying, that there are two meanings to that word. And there's a fundamental human aspect to all of this, no matter where you come from. But learning to speak into yourself, speaking from your chest, as opposed to looking around you. as this is, This is as human as brushing our teeth every day, as going to the bathroom every day. We all, we're babies and then we're toddlers. And then we're, we're children and then we're teenagers and, and we all go through this same arc of learning how to hear ourselves think and to rely on ourselves and to, and to, and to, and to, and there's nothing that separates us as human beings. We all, no matter who we are, where we come from all over the world, this is one of those invisible threads that is a continuity. No matter what your culture is, we all learn how to speak into our art, into our meaning. And we all have different, you know, different backgrounds, different contexts. There's a fundamental truth of that, that these words speak to. And they have become politicized and it becomes about culture and it becomes about Western. But the truth is that it's the same.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so the, the idea of empowerment, what that means to me when I hear is someone who doesn't know they have agency that learns that they have agency Mm -hmm. and, and that's what it means. That's, that's all it, that's all it means. Whether you are a child learning to stand on your own for the first time, that's empowerment. Whether, whether you, you use that word or not, that's actually what the word means. That you are standing on your own for the first time and that you're learning that there's a whole world, you know, when that kid is like, oh, it's on like Donkey Kong. I can (laughs) I can go here and I can go there. I can like that's what the word means. And so when we use it in a in a cultural sense, it means the same thing. Right. There's nothing for anyone to scoff at, you know. Like we as artists, like we are learning our own agency. We learn when we pick up a new tool and or work on a new series. Like mm-hmm. that's empowerment too. Indeed. That is, that is us actually understanding that there's something that we've, new plateau that we've gotten to and we can actually all go a little bit higher. We can feel right. better about ourselves. We can feel better in our bodies. In our souls. That's only a good thing. Yeah. And so that that it's it's constantly critiqued now publicly. I'm just like, what are you all talking about? That's what we're all trying to get to. Everyone feeling empowered is just gonna make everything better for everyone. Everyone around us, everyone under us, everyone over us. These are all things that we are all aspiring to get to. And there's nothing to denigrate about that. You might not you might not like the context of how the word is used but it means the same thing and it's a universal phrase it's a universal way of thinking about our advancement individually or as a community as a collective
1: right yeah and uh, speaking of that like it brings me to like I'm curious about the space and time in which you were trying to as in your words like trying to see if you're an artist and this this phase is very curious to me because uh, speaking of words and what they mean, I'm very curious to understand how, as an art designer, you felt this curiosity to see if you were an artist and then what does that word artist mean with respect to being an art designer, being a quote unquote, for lack of a better word, being a creative, so to say. Yes. And yes. how it, you know, take take me to that time when you were engaging with this curiosity and then Mm -hmm. it begins to get expressed through this daily drawing challenge.
0: Yes. Um, Well, I am someone, as is hopefully clear from this conversation, I'm always litigating what I am saying. I'm I'm always analyzing what comes out of my own mouth (laughs) first. You know, I was like, by the time it gets to you, I already have, my own critique I already have and people are like you know one of the things I I say is that I really don't care if someone doesn't like my work I'm totally at peace with that I do not care because I I really have a strong sense of my own perspective I'm not looking for outside validation because I know the context of the work that I'm doing and I have already made my own peace with what I am trying to get across. And so some people are like devastated if someone says they don't like their work. I'm like, great. It's okay, okay. But that's not something I feel like is my responsibility to make sense of. Um, and so that's all to say, when I made the decision that I was gonna start pursuing, asking myself this question, I knew I was pursuing it on two fronts. I was trying to understand the, the the you know you were talking about the the double meaning of words. And that is a really great way to think about how that's a great way for me to talk about this because that is actually how I think about this. Everything I do I think on two parallel fronts. I think about what it means to me and then I think about what it means and I know what it means to me is not necessarily what it means. And I can represent the complexity of these two ongoing considerations and that I can honor that. Sometimes they're different and sometimes they overlap and when they overlap, it's, it's a revelation and I, and I, I learn more from it, but I'm really always looking to learn from myself as I'm doing what I'm doing. And so I was curious, fundamentally, first of all, to see if I was actually an artist. I actually did not know that. And I was allowing myself to pursue questioning that and to actually give myself an answer. I didn't, I'm not someone that likes to just ruminate on things for forever. You know, that's the art director in me. That is, things are time sensitive, and there's an urgency around actually answering a question and solving, um, solving a conundrum, solving an issue, solving a production problem. I'm always looking to get answers, and that's my contract with myself. That's not anything that any is external or for anyone else. I don't. I. I, I don't need someone else to provoke a question with me like i'm starting with that within myself and i and i guard that very you know judiciously and i was just kind of like can i do this but then at the same time i was like what does it mean that i can do this it's gonna open up pandora's box basically i have to kind of rethink everything if, if I'm an artist and, and, and I'm an artist all the time, how am I going to make that work? Like I work, I work for myself. I do a lot of work. Like, how am I going to have the time to do this? When am I going to be doing this? How am I going to afford to do this? And if it means that I'm being an artist, it means that I'm starting from scratch. And I know I'm not going to make money as an artist comparable to what I'm making as a graphic designer out of the gate. So that means I have to be patient. But I also know myself, I'm going to be impatient too. And and how do I hold all of that in one body, in one form? And what I realized was that there are actually two halves of my brain in conversation with each other. And it's not schizophrenic. It is actually the whole thing in dialogue together. And so me kind of spending the first year while basically not making much money at all, and on one hand being like, I'm going to be homeless if I keep doing this. I was like, and, and people don't, they don't share these things honestly. Like, there was no financial sponsor. I didn't have parental money. There was no... You know, it was just the money I was making as a designer. And I basically just lived off of the savings I had until it ran out. You know, that's, that's the truth. And I was just kind of like, I don't know how I'm going to make this work. And thankfully, I was surrounded by so many people that saw what I was doing and immediately were like, do not stop doing this. Don't. Stop doing this. If I had just relied on myself, I wouldn't be sitting with you here right now. I would have, I would have gotten a job. I would have gone, I would have given into my fears and just kind of gone back to convention, which would not have been empowering, you know, um, and I'm making more money now than I was as that kind of designer. Um, But it's something that took a lot of time and planning and strategy and me just really being at peace with trusting my instincts around this and knowing that I could think through solutions so that I could rely on myself to come up with solutions, that I was relying on myself, that I was empowering myself to trust that I could make all of these pieces fit together.
1: Yeah. And I, I love that, that there's a fine difference here, like uh, between knowing the answers and knowing that you will find the answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And it was the act of doing and making the work that gave me the confidence. If I was just thinking about this, I wouldn't have done it. You know, and, and that's the intellectualizing. A lot of people feel like it has to be perfect or it has to be rendered before they do it. I let myself sit in the process and the process gave me the answers I needed to plan for the next phase. You know, I I hear so many people kind of paralyzed in their desire to figure everything out before they do it. And I'm often reflecting that, I don't know, I don't think that's a good idea always.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like uh, there are so many things that, uh, like if you knew the whole truth about them, you would be too afraid to try it. But there is a certain degree of ignorance and naivete and you know that, uh, that uh, just being too foolish, too uh, ignorant to know how difficult it is that is so beneficial for you. Mm-hmm. We learn how to deal with problems when they appear to us. And yes. the idea that we must be completely prepared is again an idea that, it sort of disrespects process again, right? Like yes. it's so obsessed with the result that it thinks yes. that the process is obviously thought out from before and merely an execution to go through yes. so that we can arrive again at the result. But life, life is all process. It's not, life is not results.
0: But that is what, that is it right there. Most people don't know that. That is what is wild to me is that most human beings on earth don't know fundamentally. That life is all process and not a lot of results. (laughs) Like it's something children should just all, we should just all be taught that.
1: Right. I feel like, you know, I feel like children know it, but the process of becoming an adult is the process of forgetting this basic thing.
0: Children, children know it. Children know it. And we all, we all see that. Children are all process and no results. Yeah. And and adults, you you get to a certain point and you feel like it should be all results without process.
1: Yeah. And I I, I often talk about this with my guests in with respect to, you know, this uh because most of my guests like me love to draw outdoors in public locations. So inevitably somebody comes across you drawing or painting by the side of the street and they'll have some thoughts to share, usually really nice, generous thoughts, but Always this common theme, this common story of them drawing or painting as children and really loving it. And then at one point you decide that I am a grown up and I must give up childish things. Yes. And one of these childish things is laterally connected to this. It's the idea of process over result. So I I talk about how uh, if you ask a kid to draw something, they draw it and then immediately they are done with it they move on to the next drawing, they don't really care about whether it was a good drawing or a bad drawing. Mm -hmm. But this caring about it needing to be a good drawing and then that is the only reason that I would go out of my way to make it is Mm -hmm. an exclusive domain of adult thought. So there is some part of being an adult that asks us to forget process.
0: Yes. And I think life forces us to forget process. Because when, and, and it's really, it's money that, that fucks everything up. It really kind of distorts and it breaks that, you know, there's just like a, a, a fuse that's just turned off. That once you start making money and they're the responsibilities of life. And certainly there's, there's a lot that is in there, you know. Like there's a convention when you have family and you have responsibility. There's just a lot that is pressure is there. You have societal pressure and you have family pressure and you have partners pressure and you have children, and there are all of these considerations. And there is, and it's like time and money. People don't prioritize the time. Because they're making the money, and then it just becomes this thing that is just like shoved out. That you know we we feel like we have to work to rest, to justify, and this is all American. This is like American construct that is not like this in the rest of the world. Um, even though that the um, that American narrative has coded the planet, you know we're, we're we're all in kind of like the sludge of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, it also links to our uh, our fear of sharing vulnerability, right? Like we have to be products, like we have to yes. be finished pieces. And in as an adult to indulge in art is to expose first yourself and then other people to the fact that you might not be finished, that you're still, that is something to learn. And there is something that I'm weak at and weakness cannot be shared, so to speak. Yes. And you just
0: said something profound because I think that the, the products, part of the reason that the tech industry has commodified that word is that human beings are now products. Yeah. And, and when people talk about a product launching an initiative as a product, and I work with plenty of tech people and I'm, I roll my eyes every to the back of my skull. Every single time this word is used because it is, it is like one of the defining words of software and technology. And everyone says it definitively. But every time I ask someone to dissect what the word means, it just falls apart. It always just becomes a Betty. It becomes snow. On a summer day, it just becomes (laughs) this, this kind of like formless thing. Yeah. But what, but what that is presupposing is that we, we ourselves are products.
2: Yeah.
1: And that it's an intensely dehumanizing
0: thing to believe. It's an absolutely dehumanizing thing to say, and every time someone says it in that context, I was like, "You don't even hear yourself. Like you, you wealthy, you entitled, you privileged. You don't understand that you are." reducing you're not just reducing all of us
1: you're reducing yourself mm-hmm. every
0: time you say that without any context.
1: yeah yeah you know that's 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 exactly what numbers do you know uh, numbers are a way for us to reduce the complexity of the world yes. into yes. something that is Probably. tangible into something that we can sort of work with in our hands and in our machines absolutely.
0: absolutely and and there's a place for that but
1: that it just becomes the dominant way that the conversation happens is the flaw in the engineering of how that is discussed. Absolutely. Like becoming an artist for me was this journey of understanding the place that numbers have in society and the place that they don't have and that they don't get to have. I had to appreciate how much of the world was intangible. Like you couldn't Touch it in the sense of you couldn't break it down into, you couldn't measure it. You can't break it down into numbers and then put it into equations. It's simply things that will never be tangible in that sense. And so much of life, so much of world, so much of history, so much of our relations with our environment and our our relations with the communities, our identities is intangible. And
0: art is intangible. Fundamentally, it is intangible even though we are making things that people can walk to and touch the process of making it is
2: intangible
0: and, and and i experienced this and this tour this book tour has helped me articulate this there is a there is a distance between how human beings and american culture make sense of art it is a mystery what design is and what it means and what it is or what it isn't. And I spend a lot of my time demystifying the process for, for the people that I work with, for the, um, for the strangers that I'm interacting with on this tour. I have loved talking about how I make this book
1: because most people don't know how books are made. <laughs> absolutely and let's 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 take this as the perfect segue to get into that uh now uh, i'm i'm back at this place where you have not started with a book in mind you've started with a couple of curiosities and those two curiosities are at an intersection and now you are creating something at that crossroads yes uh, you have your curiosity to see if you can be an artist and you are You're sort of mixing it in this large hadron collider with your curiosity about your history and about black history. And then once you mix these two things, you decide to take a path forward towards action and how you are going to realize this curiosity. So share with me these first ideas, like this, uh, uh, this, this place that you're at where these curiosities intersect, and then these first steps that you take to express it.
0: So I, that is a really beautiful setup because that's basically what I did. That's how, how you just articulated just the plainness of how, what your perspective is, is actually what happened. And a lot of that happened in my head, you know, it's this conversation with myself, I, I laid out for myself how I wanted to do this, um, And I had a sense that this process in and of itself was pioneering, but I almost couldn't allow myself to congratulate myself because I was genuinely tackling something at a scale that I had not done for myself ever. Mm -hmm. And I was still establishing within myself the artist that I was. And I knew basically I was calling it a level of artistry that I had not done since college and that frankly, I had also never done what I knew was inside of, it. and I knew this project would just extract all of it. I have friends that have seen most of the arts that I have made in my recent career that when they opened up the book were shocked to discover the work at that level. They were like, I didn't know you could do this. A lot of my friends said, Mm -hmm. I did not know you could do this. Mm -hmm. I knew I could do this. But by then I had given myself permission to just take that out. It wasn't a question for me anymore. It was just how deeply I was going to sink into it. And because making art was such a part of like, you know, I'm referred to as prolific, even though I haven't made a lot of art in the last few months. Um, but I was drawing all the time. There was a period of, you know, I had, I, I had a regular column in the Chronicle. I was drawing all drawing and painting all the time. And it became like water for me. It's like drinking water, breathing air. It was every day. I'm actually ramping up back into that again. Um, But it, it, it has, you know, getting to that point of knowing that I was gonna make this meant that I was giving myself over to the process completely and that it was just only gonna be process. Right. And then I had the art director side of me that loves order and structure (laughs)
2: <laughs> deadlines
0: that, and deadlines and so that is basically how how i did this yeah the two complementary sides of where i've described it as the artist is, is the, the art director is the steward and the artist is the toddler i i let the artist run wild and i did not put any parameters around my ability to run wild but I gave myself parameters around time. How much I was going to give myself over to the process. Um, timing. Uh, and and commitment. There was no part of this process. Even though there were times I thought, I don't know if this is going to see the light of day. I knew that I was not going to give up. On seeing through the whole vision i wanted to make sure that i would be able to do this at the level that i wanted it to be the art director in me was like it has to be up here and the artist in me was just like i just want to make art and i really i let those two play in the same sandbox you know the art director, it has to look like this, and I want it to say this, and this is what the packaging has to be, and this is what the cover has to look like and feel like, and blah 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 blah. And the artist to me was like, I'm just going to draw lines and squiggles, and I'm gonna like decide, and I'm gonna decide, you know, whether I'm gonna use paint or but, and and I really let them, I let them be, right. And they, they and I tell. I tell anyone who is curious about this this difference is that they are they're not the same thing. Being an artist is not the same thing as being an art director or being a graphic designer. Being a graphic designer sometimes is artistic, but it is rarely artistic. It's it's a lot of considerations, it's about architecture, it's more along the lines of engineering. When I'm a graphic designer, I'm an engineer. I'm putting together pieces that make up a whole. I'm making an engine that is fueling the creativity that is alongside me. But I am super clear with everyone that they are not the same skills because they aren't the same skills.
1: Yeah. I kind of parse even illustration and uh, so. I I came to it because I was thinking about uh, somebody asked if I would uh, take on a job and I had to explain it to myself first before I could tell them why I didn't want to do it uh, the difference between being an artist and being an illustrator to me was uh, a little bit like that that uh, yes. and what you're describing even as an uh, graphic designer of course is the is quite similar which is one is working towards something yes and another is growing out of something and the final form is not necessarily determined, yes. and the, the this this debate or this uh, friction between the designer and the artist in you sounds to me like uh, a bit of uh, push and pull in this about trying to give form and then trying to not give form because creativity doesn't doesn't really enjoy those things. But constraints, like so, constraints and. Uh, uh, like you described, the word that you pick is not constraints, but the word that I use, uh, you used parameters. And I use the word constraints when I'm talking about my art, because I also started from a daily drawing challenge. And I also sort of started at the intersection of two curiosities. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, I was when, trying... did, when
0: did you start this first? This
1: sure. First? Uh, well, I had just moved to Chicago. It was 2016. And huh. I had quit in the middle of a PhD program. I was going to become a neuroscientist. And I had quit oh with the idea that, no, I want to write stories. I'm going to be a writer and a novelist. Yes. And when I was that's, in Chicago. That's when I started, too, was 2016. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Lovely. So when I, when I was in Chicago, uh, I immediately fell in love with the city. Uh-huh. Like, it, it took me no time to absolutely be enchanted by the city. And I decided to bring together two curiosities I had. One was that as a writer, I was also drawing this webcomic at the time, which was with stick figures because I didn't know how to draw at all. And I really wanted to learn how to draw better. And the second curiosity was that I really wanted to explore this incredible city that seemed so unique to me, that every street corner, every neighborhood had its own character. I loved everything about it. So much, so much of Chicago. Like I can keep going on about Chicago endlessly, mm-hmm. but uh, I I brought these two curiosities together to do my own thirty day project. That every day I'm allowed to go to a new part of the city to explore what the hell these amazing people keep doing mm-hmm. and the places they do it at. And every day I make a drawing. And if I keep looking for things that are beautiful to me and I keep drawing them, surely it's a matter of time I should learn how to draw. Yes, and. My enthusiasm for the city fueled my need to build a daily practice and to sustain a habit, to make it not just a short-term momentum thing, but something that I would be able to do week after week after week. And in that way, I found myself becoming an artist. Suddenly, my art had a form. Suddenly, it had a leaning towards a style because I was operating under these parameters that I have to draw from Mm -hmm. observation. I have to draw uh, very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a function of me being the immigrant and the person I am. I have to do it without anybody knowing that I'm doing this silly little thing. I'm going to be very, very sneaky.
0: That is very similar. And this is where our stories very much align. So much of my strategy in doing this was because I'm an immigrant also. And we have to be strategic about every single thing we do because we're not just representing ourselves, we're representing our families. And it's, it's that psychology that um, framed so much of what I was doing. It wasn't just about me. I, at no point have I thought that everything that I'm doing is not going to directly affect the people around me and because my family you know I come from a family of artists that are not necessarily supportive of artists um, my cousins and I have a whole strain of cousins that are some of the most glorious artists I know and they're entirely self-trained and it's just something that just naturally happened and the rest of my family is like okay <laughs> <laughs> And I basically became an artist without my family's support. Um, they're very supportive of me now. I, I, I want make it, to make it clear. Um, but it's kind of something I had to kind of just do on my own and mm-hmm. figure out if... But there, there is, there's an isolation in that because I'm pretty sure you come from a family too that if you're like, I'm an artist, your parents would have been like, that's fantastic. <laughs>
1: that's that's not that, that is not the response. Indeed. Yeah. And, absolutely. And, and, we, and incidentally we, I come from a very creative family too. Yes. But they do not see it as a practical way to live. Yes, yes. They all and, and my
0: family too does not see it as practical. And it's very much why when I graduated college, I went I went to college and studied graphic design alongside fine arts. And so I learned the trade while learning the conventions and then when i graduated my family was like Mm-mm. if you if you're like there's no artists there's no black artists that we know of There's 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 nothing comparable there's no model out there for this and and at the time there wasn't this was in the mid-90s and you know now you can swing a de- dead cat and they're like there's a whole legion of people who look like me but at the time there there wasn't right and so i looked around i saw the landscape i was like ooh this is not a good idea for me to pursue and so i did the smart thing and i got i got a job at a at a corporation cuz that's what you did if you were going to go into into media and at the time there was Were the tech companies at at the time, you know, it's funny. We look at tech companies now, we don't see the similarities, but, but all of that, it's the face they're all media companies. They've been saying they're tech companies for years. And, and, and I've been looking at that. I was like, Twitter's a media company. Facebook's a media company. Apple's a media company. They're all media companies. It's just that technology is driving because. They're all figuring out basically how to tell stories now. They finally understood that they're actually not providing a service, that they're actually allowing human beings to tell each other stories. That is the foundation of all of their success. Um, even Amazon. You know, it's, like, it's not by accident that Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. Right. You know, all of these guys, and they're all guys. At the end of the day, they all want their own newspapers. They all want their own. They all want their own. Their own toys to share stories, mm-hmm. because that's what we do. That's what we, as human beings, do. We're doing it in musical form. We're doing it. Paint. That's what. That's what we are all here to do: to tell each other stories.
1: Right. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about this decision to to study art like i feel like it's not such an easy decision to make especially in you know how you describe a system where you don't have a lot of roadmaps you don't have a lot of uh, role models that you can kind of trace backwards from how yeah. like, what was it like to take this decision
0: um isolating i was i was really alone um, i was that kid who drew in the margins of every notebook I had in elementary school, in junior high school, in high school. I just, I drew obsessively. And it was all just like the things that actually inspired me at the time, which were comic books. You know, I started reading comic books at age nine, um, and I still read them today because I think it's one of the best forms of human storytelling still to this day. And and it is still, it's the foundation of basically the biggest part of movie making right now. And people are still dismissive of the origin point of all of these stories. People think that comic books are juvenile. And I reject that. I've, I've always rejected. I think it's one of the more sophisticated forms of storytelling and yeah a lot of comic books are about superheroes but a lot of them are not about superheroes it's about the complexity of our everyday life um, and some of our best writers human writers are absolutely comic book like I, for
1: me alan moore is one of the greatest uh, writers i know and uh, he's a comic book writer so you tell people you ask people if they've read alan moore and usually they dismiss it as soon as you say he writes comic books
0: well, the funny thing is even he is dismissing it these days. But well, you know, Alan Moore hates everybody. He, and is, everything. he is very critical of comic books right now. That's that's his that's his story right now. And it's like it it does nothing to di- diminish the power of his work. He can say whatever he wants. You know? I, that's
1: exactly what I believe, you know. I feel like Alan Moore has earned the right to say anything he wants about comics. Like you just you cannot argue with him. He's yeah. he's earned it. <laughs> and 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 I don't feel the need to deify him in in you know
0: kind of saying that he's a brilliant writer because he is a brilliant writer, um, but the form in and of itself is still devalued um, in American society. It it still is very much this like oh it's comic books. Meanwhile, it's the bedrock. It has saved the movie industry. It's transformed the movie industry. But as far as a money making entity it's it's where it is and and it's not changing anytime soon everyone's like oh it's a phase like we're all getting sick
1: no no we're not (laughs) what were the comics that you grew up with
0: um i grew up so my comic book was about bodegas so it was basically what was in the bodega in my neighborhood and bodegas for people who don't know are just corner stores it's like urgent general stores consolidated general stores it's as old as human history there's there's always the store that you walk into you know there's you know everyone knows 7-eleven and all that but it's it's the in new york it's like you walk in there's like flowers there's cheese there's like all the all the things that we need immediately as human beings and so the comic books at the time that I had in there were The Legion of Superheroes, The New Teen Titans, The X-Men. And those were the comic books at the time that were celebrating this kind of new form of uh, multiplicity. That the characters were racially diverse. There were a lot of women who were commanding and leading teams, um, and all three of these teams books were about societies. You know, it was a, a New Teen Titans was about sidekicks that were coming into heroes as their own right. Legion of Super Superheroes was the utopian ideal of a future that we can look forward to. It was not not it rejected this dystopian idea that is still the dominant. Way that we think about our future, uh, and then the X Men were about a bunch of outsiders, and so um, those were the comic books that I read and and loved. There was another one called Batman and the Outsiders that was very much um, I really just kind of I just swallowed these stories whole and they took a hold in me and it's very much like i have learned how to write as a writer i basically organize my stories comic book writing has influenced my writing in ways that no one could tell oh
1: absolutely yeah i, I in fact like uh, i i tell people uh, about uh, like the great influence that like what a comic book page is is really Somebody dealing with a short attention span Mm -hmm. and combining both words and images in the most harmonious way to deal with, you know, like a a comic book panel can be beautifully drawn, beautifully painted, but it will get attention for like one second. Right. And it has to work in that one second. It has to say something. Everything in a comic book page is there because it has to say something. Nothing is extraneous. Nothing Nothing is is
0: extraneous. And it was probably the first venue that I learned about the power of composition. Now you're not just thinking about where the words and the visuals are going, but you're thinking about the interplay of them. And the artists, those were the first artists that actually inspired me. Were comic book artists. George Perez, John John Byrne, um, Uh, Keith Geffen, these were all of the titans of those industries. Colleen Doran, there were a few women, uh, Louise Simonson, that they were actually telling complicated stories. You know, the Legion of Superhero had gay and lesbian people and black and brown and yellow and chartreuse. And it was every day. It wasn't like no one was asking for diversity. That was like one of the most diverse casts, like comic books at the time. And it was written by a white Jewish man as as a lot of those books were at the time that were, you know, people, people forget that Black Panther, this paragon of black exceptionalism was created by two white men. You know, this this convention of a autonomous black country that was never colonized came from the minds of two white men right <laughs> um and so there, there was a lot there's a lot of complexity in the storytelling right. yeah and i i really i absorbed all of that at a young age
1: now and now it, with with this with this in you when we come to the idea of then you know turning around and expressing something like there is there is this phase in which we are so, you know, I, when I just absorbed, I was in such a rush to read and see more and know more and learn and learn and learn. And then mm-hmm. I reached this age where I discovered that I am also allowed to say things. I'm also allowed to, like you, anybody can write a story and anybody can make a little drawing next to it. So mm-hmm. uh, when you're absorbing these stories from all these sources and they're taking you to these places, how did this idea develop of what you wanted to say, and what were some of these first thoughts you had about how you would want to say it? What are these paths that you thought you know were opening up in front of you?
0: I love this question, thank you, because it is one of the secrets of how I was able to do this. Um, you know, all through the process, not not all through the process. I'm, I'm not being honest there towards the end of the process I was just kind of like oh I actually did all of this stuff and I'm kind of diminishing that I did all of this stuff and I started asking uh my publisher I started asking my editor and and one of the art directors internal art directors I was um uh that was a, a kind of information person i was working with on the cover i was like have you ever had have you guys had someone who did the writing art and design of your of your books and he was like no you're the first we've nev- we've never had this before it's like we we've, we've had to kind of change our process to work with you because we have never we don't work with authors that know the whole process and are in control of the whole process. And, and I was like, oh, this is actually a really unique thing that I did. That in my mind, I, it only until the end of the process did, did I think about how intentional and strategic. I, I had to basically outline the whole process. I had to outline the writing process I had to outline the making of the art. I had to outline the design of the book. Sometimes they were separate. Sometimes they overlapped. Sometimes two of them overlapped. And it was just always this kind of game with myself of what I needed to prioritize, what I needed to do first. Um, Doing the book over again, if I were to do it over, There's a lot of things I would do differently, but the one thing that I would not change, I would change the process of writing. I would change the process of design. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything in terms of like the book that you have is the book that I made. Like I, that is absolutely every single page is to my specification. I got the book that I made. But in terms of the timing of some things, I would have started this earlier and this would have come to the end and I would have done this. Like I I, could, I see the whole thing as a series of Tetris pieces where I can kind of move them around and that's kind of how I was thinking about it the whole time. Um, but the one thing I wouldn't change is how I did the art. That was That was the only fluid piece of this process the whole time. And I've described it as it was the spine right. that kept the whole form moving forward. Yeah. The more I kept making the art, the more the rest of the thing made sense to me and everyone else around me.
1: Right. And and the art is something really, It, I mean, holding the book in my hand, it does feel like the art is what like describing it as the spine is the really true word here because you've expressed yourself in so many different ways here within these parameters that you had uh, you had sort of th- set for yourself within these ideas that you had used in order to be able to power yourself in a specific controlled direction with mm-hmm. this curiosity which threatens to go every which way yes uh, tell me a little bit about this the you know making this spine of the book like How did you approach the artistic process? What were the parameters you put in place so that you would not stray, so that you would go in this direction?
0: Um, I'm basically going to answer this completely opposite and contrary and contradictory to how I've been answering everything else. I put no parameters on the art. I let myself just do what felt right. And what happened is that I didn't know that I was going to be doing an individual style for each piece. That, you know, it's the thing that people comment on the most with this book, that they're astonished that the book has so many different styles, that there's a different distinct style for every single portrait. I didn't know that I was going to be pursuing it that way. But when I did the first few portraits and I saw how individual they were, I was like, aha, that's what I'm going to do. Like I let making the art define that path. I could not have thought that and then did it that way. It, it wouldn't, I would never have done it that way, but I don't think I would have been able to do that. I don't think I would have been able to stay in, in, within those constraints. And so every time I started a portrait, I was starting a brand new process. And so I did 350 different processes in the making of this book. And, and I knew that that would be, that it was, in, in approaching it this way, I was also basically making a declaration about fine
2: arts
0: (laughs) and I knew it was pretty audacious of me to say this is what I think it should be.
1: Listeners, I am so glad to have you here. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Let's take just a short break. I want to thank each one of you that listens to this show and especially all the lovely listeners that reach out to tell me what they liked about every episode. I'm just one person behind this whole production, and every piece of feedback helps me improve the next time around. In the episode description, find links to buy George's book and visit his website. I absolutely love his book. Whether you want to educate yourself further on Black history, or if you just want to admire his amazing art project, Every portrait is drawn in a different style and as a person who takes or let's say steals (laughs) inspiration from other artists, I have something to steal in every single page. I also want to thank Sneaky Art Insiders, the wonderful people that support this show and my work as an independent creator. Like I said, I'm just one person behind this whole production. If you like this episode, tap the button in the description to buy me a coffee. Use it as an opportunity to start a conversation. If you love this show and have enjoyed several episodes, perhaps, consider becoming a sneaky art insider. Insiders get all kinds of perks and privileges, and your annual support amounts to less than a cup of coffee per episode. That's it. But most of all, it's my privilege to have you here and for you to keep listening. I like that you listen to me wherever you are in this world, in your world. So far, maybe from mine. How crazy is that? So, is your studio space unrelated to your living space? Like, do you rent a studio in another place somewhere? I rent a studio.
0: Um, I've been in this space for
1: four and a half years now. Mm -hmm. And how do you balance, like... Like how does how does it fit into your work for you the studio space like is it purely for you as an artist or is there also other things that you keep it for?
0: So now it's pretty integrated. Um, my studio space here is also my design space. Uh, but for a while, I had two spaces: I had a design space and I had a fine art space. And it made sense to separate it for those same reasons. I had these two, and they. I didn't know how they merged together. But then like so many things, the pandemic just, everything <laughs> was just gone. Yeah. All, all the conventions were completely over. And, and so I had to start integrating. Okay. So I started commuting here and working on my design practice here. And then after a couple of years, I was like, "Why do I have two spaces?" That seems silly to me. Right. So yeah, now, it's... now it's it's all here.
1: Yeah, uh, I've uh, like just uh, this was it yesterday? No, it's Sunday. Sunday, I was there was this uh, culture crawl in Vancouver when all or well a large number of studios open up their doors and people can walk around and look at people at work and how they how they work. It was amazing for me because it was the first time I was attending such a thing in this part of the world. I'm still so new, mm-hmm. and I've been just recently thinking about whether I would want a studio space and how I might use it. And it's, yeah. you know, the most interesting part of it to me feels like if it if it becomes something away from the rest of your work and lets you, you know, you need these, uh, illusions to yeah. help you play, <laughs> <laughs> right. Parameters, constraints. Yeah. Right. Right. That's what we were talking about. Let's yeah. let's get back to that. Yes. So uh, um, the like the idea of how so what you described, especially in terms of parameters and what it sounded to me like was centering it around this joy of both discovery and the joy of making art. Mm-hmm. And pursuing that good feeling mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to think about this idea of a daily practice, a daily challenge to set yourself and why to do it. And why does somebody who is tapped into their creativity still find some benefit in it? What, what was the use of it to you?
0: Uh, well, I can say that now. I can give you a plain answer now uh, where it was a little more abstract to me for a lot of years. It's, um, to our point earlier, it's a ritual and what rituals do in our everyday life is it, it grounds our human existence. It allows us to learn from the repetition. It allows us to grow from the repetition. Uh, and it's, it's funny that you're asking me this now because I am now thinking that I actually need to get back to a daily practice Mm -hmm. because I have been outside of my drawing, painting practice for several months now, um, in service to finishing the book and overseeing the marketing, uh, and, you know, the, and then going on a book tour and being, being the ambassador of this thing that I've spent all these years making the irony is that I talk more about making art than actually making art and it was fine for a while but I'm I'm hitting I I I've, I've been asked a few times if the tour is exhausting and it's like no that the tour is fantastic um but I am feeling this consternation with myself right over right not being able to do the thing that actually grounds and defines my practice is that I haven't made art in months and it, and my whole body is just kind of like, mm, we don't, we don't like this.
1: Yeah. Like, like enough talk, get back to it.
0: <laughs> enough talk already enough talk. Yeah. So I'm, I, my studio the the week that we're recording this, I closed my studio down for the week. Um, not just to catch up on my over 500 emails that I have <laughs> not had a chance to read, which it's not hyperbole, it's over 500. Oh, crazy. Um, it, but it, it is also for me to have a chance to just sit with myself and start drawing and doodling and thinking of ideas. I'm, I'm already in depth into my next book project but even that i haven't had room to sit with for a few right. minutes because there's been a this larger elephant that i've been attending to and shepherding right that has demanded all of my time
1: yeah i'm actually very curious about this aspect of it because making a book uh, design like writing making putting together and then selling and marketing they are such different processes very and they take so much time yes. and every new process every new task is further away from the actual job of the creation you said it so how do you how do you keep that you know like your relationship with this project is changing in so many ways it's evolving in so many ways over time you are seeing first you saw it you experienced it in the creation and then you started to see it as uh when putting it together you have to externalize it a little bit and you have to see it as other people would see it. Yes. And then this job of actually having them discover it and then reacting to it and reacting to their queries because this thing has only now entered their world, but it has lived in your world for that several
0: is months. Seriously so correct, because that's what I stare at. Uh that the positive side of this, of what you're saying, is that I don't need to plan. You know, there's no, I've been asked, do I have to prepare for my talks? And my answer is no. I've been thinking about this for years. Just put a mic in front of my face. I I, I don't need people, you know, the interview is, can we send you questions? I was like, no, you don't have to do anything. Just come with your perspective. And I'll tell you mine. It's, it's, it's been really simple for me. Right. It's not, it's not weird. It's not awkward. I feel no ambivalence about representing any part of this process. It's been really glorious, but I am totally out of time step with everyone that I speak to in that they're experiencing it as a new experience. But it's it's the oldest experience for me at this point, but I'm, but it's being reframed in
1: them having a new experience
2: mm-hmm. with it.
1: Yeah, it 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 is the longer payoff that you wanted, but you're in a, like a, out of step is the right way to think about it. Is is it? Do you do you, like there's so much to be grateful for in this process that of yes. course, there are people discovering it, and it is a new experience that you're and it will continue to be a and new experience wonderful. in the yes. years to
0: come for years for years, yeah,
1: yeah, and the the more important this book or the more loved this book becomes, the more people will discover it again for the first time, Yes, and again, yes. they will approach you with that enthusiasm level, yes. and as the person who's made something, it's beautiful. But, as the person who is making more things, is it like a drag does it does it sort of do you have to detach from it in some way it
0: it hasn't, been, well, I've decided that i i d- I don't want to do that, and that right. was the conscious decision too. I was like, I understand mm. how this process burns people out. I understand why someone would check out because it is it's relentless, and people you know the conversation is rarely about what exhausts someone in a, in a, a, a circumstance like this. And I'll, I'll tell you what does exhaust people. It's the exchange of energy. Basically, people leech energy. They, they give or they take it. And, and we rarely discuss this as a, as a tangible thing. You know, but when you're going out in the world, people are taking from you. It's a, it's emotionally, they're looking for an exchange. They're looking for something. And I've had to really kind of condition myself for the, the marathon of that, because I want to be out in the world. I want to be around people. I will don't intimidate me. I, I am excited to share. But I've had to be really—I had to really monitor myself to make sure that I'm rested, to make sure that I'm not—I I feel grounded before these events. You know, my rest and my sleep have become the most important. You know, I'm a pretty social person, and I—I I haven't seen my friends in any real way in months because I'm—I'm pri- I'm prioritizing my care, frankly, overseeing them. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm grateful that I have a community that no one's giving me a hard time about it. Uh, uh-huh. where I've I've really had to monitor myself to make sure that I don't feel like it's a drag.
1: Cuz the worst the worst experience I could give myself is being checked out. Absolutely, yes. And it's such a betrayal of all of these new experiences that people are going through like yes. I, I it's uh it's it's this unfortunate struggle like if only the moment I had a brilliant idea, it could be broadcast to everybody, and they would all feel it exactly the way that I wanted them to. Uh, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so it doesn't feel like a drag,
0: I, and I'm I'm happy to say that I I feel I feel energized by this, and you know, and and there've been little things like I'm trying not to get sick. You know, the, being on the road all the time takes its toll, and. You know, cooties are going around again. People are just getting regular calls again, and and I'm trying to, you know, play Frogger and Frogger around the cooties, and so that means so far so good. I hope so far so great. So far so great. Let me
1: let me knock on the wood of my of my big head. I'll knock on my desk. Yeah, uh, but. I I love what you said about, you know, the way that people can either give or take energy from you. And Mm -hmm. of course, there is how other people are. And then there is how you are. So I find that I lose energy very quickly Mm -hmm. and I have to recharge. So I need my alone time. I need time with my own inside my own head for extended periods so that I can be generous around other people because I have a specific amount that I feel I have to give. Uh, it reminds me also of this idea that I read recently. So I was reading about existentialism and things like this. And I read this quote by Jean-Paul Sartre, which the quote is provocative. The quote says, hell is other people.
0: Yes, I've, I've,
2: I've, I've read that quote. Yes. Yeah.
1: So uh, you you know what I'm, what I'm coming mm-hmm. to. Like mm-hmm. the idea that being around other people can be hell in the sense that other people have images of you, mm-hmm. other have ideas about you. And then when you are in the company of other people, you find yourself boxed into those images and mm-hmm. fitting. But we can think of them as stereotypes. We can think of them as character traits or personality types, but various definitions that we are boxed into. And mm-hmm. in various ways, it restricts and constrains us. Now, I'm trying to think about, again, the... the 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 inspiration behind the curiosity behind this book and the idea of owning your space, the idea of owning your history, the idea of giving yourself the mandate to Mm -hmm. share Mm -hmm. that history in your way. Mm -hmm. In your through your combinations of lines and words. Yes. And that is a valid way to do it too. There is a lot of, well, we've been over this word. There's a lot of empowerment here. There's a lot of permission that you give yourself. And there is a lot of permission that personalities and figures and these, including these people that you have researched about, that they give you this permission to do it. Having seen that they also battled far superior odds in so many cases to do what they really, really wanted to do, to be themselves. Mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. well Tell me about this exploration. Like, how did how did this exploration begin for you? How did this how did you let this curiosity play itself out, Mm -hmm. and you know, build up a list of all of these these amazing people that you ended up drawing, spending time with. You know, I think that's the most beautiful part of it. You spent time with them,
0: I and I spent spiritual time, um, because artists don't. Talk enough about the spiritual aspects of what we do, and I don't mean religious. I mean spiritual, um, where it's not a dogma. It's more an invisible line of faith and trust, and um, and commitment and fidelity that you are communing both with yourself and your subject matter, uh, whether it's your art, your craft, in in my case, it was the pioneers that I was representing and I was really looking to show different aspects of human personality. Also, um, I have a dear friend who told me when I started making art again, six years ago, that I illustrate emotionally. And it was the first time I felt like someone actually understood what I was doing. I do illustrate emotionally. Um, And what that means is I'm trying to capture emotion and you can see the emotion in the line. I'm a pretty visceral fine artist. So you see the lines, you see the color, you see the strokes and they all convey the personality of the people that I am uh, communing with. And in, In all of these cases, you know, you were speaking earlier about. Uh, you were speaking earlier about just finding that I'm I'm trying to remember the exact words you were using. It's like when you're, you're like tapping into that thing. And what I, what I was looking to do was to convey not just the personality, but the personality of the moment in time. You know, I wanted to show Anita Hill angry. I wanted to show Ida B. Wells pissed. I wanted to show Malcolm X happy. And, and it's breaking the convention of the stories I wasn't just looking to represent them as icons. I was like, I was not interested in that. I was looking to represent them as complex human beings. Right.
1: To and, add to the image of what we, you know, what is retained in our minds of them.
0: And to also, course, correct, frankly, how people talk about Black history. They tend to be dismissive of the complexity, even though they know it's the foundation of our history, like the the black community's history in this country is very unique. And it's fraught and it's heavy and it's intense. Um, and I wanted to convey that. <laughs> I wanted to convey the intensity of it and, and not have it be one style where it was just the same icon over and over and over and over and over, and over again. I wanted to show loose line or really tightly rendered or you know sloppily painted or precisely painted i wanted to basically have the portraits take on double meanings which is that it's representing the person but it's also representing the idea behind the person and so that was kind of my north star in the making of the arts um and it provided continuity for how I was writing. You know, I thought I would be, I thought the writing would come first and then the art. But what ended up happening is that the art defined the writing. In a, in a lot of cases, which was a surprise for me. And it was a source of frustration for me. But I started to see that it was actually, it was working out really well to do it that way. And that became the way that it was coming together. You know, I had to kind of give myself over to the process because I was also working with other people, you know. And I've said this often, if if this book was entirely under my own steam, I would have done like three books in the time it took to make this book. But what I, but what ended up coming out of that is that I learned so much that I would never have learned. If I hadn't done it this way, I would never have learned where I had to kind of basically start, start from scratch several times. And this whole process was starting from scratch. It was trusting my instincts and coming up with the the list. And to answer your question more directly. It was anecdotal. You know, there were some people who made suggestions to me. I had a document that ended up having close to 500 names. And they were all people I was interested in. That I had a, some I had specific uh, knowledge on their history and their story. And other people I was hearing about for the first time and it just became about me really being interested in a specific aspect of their story and kind of selecting avatars of uh, of a form of accomplishment that i wanted to show you know I've, I've i've said this is the thing i have said consistently in a lot of conversations around this book is that my bias is all over this book. I, I, prou- I am proud of the bias that I have in here, that there are more women than men, that there are um, more artists in this book that someone else would have selected. I wanted to show, I was basically saying, I think artists are some of the most important people on this
2: planet. <laughs> <laughs> T- tell know. me a
1: little bit about, you know, like owning up to one's biases, like even recognizing one's biases, but really to drive forward with your filters, your bias, owning your space and your ideas. Did, has this always been something, uh, Was would you say it's something natural to you? Would you say it's something you've acquired over time? It's something I've always
0: had in me, but it's something I have acquired the confidence to represent it is, you know, in the last five to 10 years. Right. I think a lot of it has to do with age also, you know, kind of working on this book, doing this book in my 40s as opposed to my 20s or 30s. It would have been totally different.
1: Tell me a little bit about that. Let's get into that difference. What kind of what how what what shape would it take?
0: What it would have taken, I'll tell you what this book was and I'll tell you what it would not have been if I had done this book in my 20s. Um, I would have been too intimidated to do this book in my 20s. First first of all, I don't think I would have taken this project on. I would have totally declassified myself from, from doing this. I would not have had the confidence to say, yes, I am doing this. You know, it was, I started thinking about this project in my early forties and I'm now 51 and I, it, I'm looking back, it's like, well, obviously I was going to do this, <laughs> but I would never have. I, I have a, a faith and trust in my body and my soul and my ability, my stamina. I'm really resi- resilient and I, I am in better shape now, frankly, than I was in my 20s and 30s. Physically, I'm in the best shape of my life, but also in terms of my brain. I am clearer with myself than I have ever been. And so I, I think like I've had to be smart about how I take care of myself. And that's why I'm in the best shape of my life, because I'm really considerate. In how how that happens, and I'm smarter. I have more boundaries. I say no when I mean no, and all these things were much more fungible. You know, I had no boundaries in my twenties. Twenty year olds, people in their twenties have no idea what that what that is. They we feel a pressure when we're younger to conform. In my forties, I felt no pressure. To conform. And I, I think that's just a natural part of human evolution also, like we, we all kind of move, we have this kind of biological strain. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that men, we don't talk about, you know, men having a biological clock also. And I think that we do. In our 40s is when our bodies, like everything slots together. You know, I was like, I understood myself. Right. In a much kind of just everyday way, where I don't second guess my decisions, I really trust what I am representing to myself, and so that's a that's a
1: that's a really great place to be for a project like this absolutely yes. I mean, I turned thirty a few years ago, and it was my best birthday because. I felt like finally I can just get on with the business of doing things. You know, yes. like I felt like I had discarded so many people's opinions of me and the way that they were dragging yeah. on me and my expression of self.
0: And you, the older you get, the more you lose your baggage. Right. You know, there, there's a misnomer that people get more, like more tighter as they get older that's not, that's not the world that I inhabit. Mm -hmm. I, I, the people that I see around me are becoming more expansive. They're getting looser. They're, they're sitting in the comfort of themselves. It's like well-earned and I am much looser as a person. I have way more patience. I have like, I'm just, I like, I was like, you do you i I have no desire to solve anyone else's personal problems like mm-hmm. I, I have a no drama policy in my life <laughs> like things are things are good over here
1: right excellent
0: <laughs> and and that that is what has come come with this time
1: yeah yeah i'm I'm fascinated by the general concept of you know just being just allowing yourself to be yourself. Because I grew up in a culture in which that's not explicitly encouraged. The If you become really successful, then you get a pass. But until the moment you become really successful, it's not something you encourage in another person that they stand out from the crowd or that they do something only because they wanted to do it in without the due consideration of what others might think of it and how they might judge it. So. Right. Society was organized around uh, knowing that you're not stepping out of line from the rest of everybody. And it's taken me a lot of time and America helped me to sort of see it and I'm grateful for that. The mm-hmm. idea that I can just do it because just I want to do it. Yes. And that, that idea and that, has it value.
0: It doesn't have to be anything else. Right,
1: right. And you, exactly. and, and you don't have to pass it through anyone else's filter. You do not have to get Permission, there are no gate, gatekeepers are not allowed. And I don't care about gates. I just walk through, I do what I want. And seeing the world in this way, I think it was catalyzed by me becoming the first time that I had the awareness that I am an outsider in my in my in my environment. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I lived, I studied in Europe for a few years and I felt this way. And then when I came to America, I felt it in a more profound way because. I was also taking the opportunity to redefine myself. I had just left my old ladders, my old career behind and started at the base of a new ladder. And I was excited and I was nervous and I was in this new place that suddenly wanted to give me a bunch of labels. We moved very quickly from Chicago to the middle of Wisconsin mm-hmm. and suddenly my world changed again mm-hmm. and the diversity of my of my world shifted to a certain direction and I had to deal with the different things that I was to other people and then try to be who I am. So in that light, I'm so curious to understand how you perceived yourself in America because you also came to America as an outsider. You also have your own imbibed sense of your history and where you belong. Mm -hmm. And you're in a world which is constantly trying to put you inside a box of its own. Yes. Describe some of, you know, like it's so easy for me to say that you're not like this anymore and things are good. But describe for me some of the struggles to become this way.
0: Yeah. No, it's, it's something that is still there. That, that is not something that I think I will ever represent as like, oh, I'm, I'm good over here with that. Because I, as any Black person will tell you, we hate it. We hate it. And, and any, if any immigrant is being honest, they'll tell you that they hate it. And the immigrants who don't have to do that basically are passing as white, where they can disappear into the culture that is not going to challenge that aspect of them. Uh, But it is, I saw it as a strength as I was making this book, because that's the part that I was unsure of. And it took me about a year is like, you know, an awareness that I am an outsider and I have know that my whole, my whole American existence, I've been a citizen of this country since I was 15. So a majority of my life has been as an American citizen. And I am a very proud American. And I also know that I am still an outsider. And I'm totally at peace with that. It's not something I have struggled with because I'm also, I'm from a part of the world where when I go, I'm not a Black person. I'm just George. And the world of difference in my daily life with that invisible thread alone, they might as well be on different planets. And so I am still a Black person first in terms of how I am often seen. And that's the construct of race that this country has, this has been, the cancer that this country has given the world is that we have these categories of race and class and gender that we're all kind of struggling through on a daily basis. And then we have to kind of define how we're fitting inside of this nonsense. And it just poisons everything. Right. Do you think it would have...
1: Do you think it would have been a much more difficult experience for you had you been born in America with, you know, from early infancy with those labels constantly being fixed to you? Well, that's what, that's what I'm, I'm, I was alluding to.
0: I actually realized a year into the project that it was um, a really great thing <laughs> that I am an immigrant working on this book because I've been on the inside of the Black experience. And I could represent the complexity of it in a way that uh, an American Black person might not have made the same decisions that I, that I did um, because they're on the inside of this experience in a deeper way. And so what I wanted to do was honor the fact that I was also approaching this book it, with those two forms of thinking, that I am also an insider because I'm here. I'm here. I live here. I love this country. The country frustrates me as it frustrates so many other people for lots of really valid reasons. Um, but I'm also really proud to be here. I'm, I'm not conflicted about living here. I, I'm not someone who lives in America that's like, oh, I wish I lived some, somewhere else. I, I, I've never thought that. I have a career that I have and the life that I have because I I'm, I live here. Um, and so I'm not going to misrepresent that to make a point i can i, I can I can honor all, all all of the facets of this, and I saw that as something that would be really additive to the making of this book right uh it would allow me to render the complexity of history because I also am the embodiment of that complexity
2: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell uh, like I want like I have a number of questions from this, but I want to stray on just this last point. Uh, tell me a little bit about like I want to think about how we share history and how we talk about history and the idea of liberating it from dates and events and especially you know dates and events tend to also be very patriarchal events. Always. So. Tell it me usually, a little bit about this is. Yeah, this book as a way to to own, you know, to, to take back what is history from the clutches of these these very, you know, very limited ideas. Yes.
0: And I think I think of the way that history and it's a bold statement to make, and I, I know it's it's gonna make me a target in some ways to say that. But I, I wanted to release myself from the way that history is presented. Because I really hate the way that history is presented um in this country and in Europe. I really, really, really hate it. it it's it's to me it's it's a system that set has set up this caste system of like there's some of us that made amazing things, and the rest of you did not
1: right. <laughs> and you only come into the picture at this point in time when you only, our ships reached and, your and lands. Then, and then, yes, and then your history with us began
0: when we brought you over here. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's basically nothing that exists before that. And all of us, though, we go back. We go back until the dawn of time. But you guys slot in here, here, definitely not here. Right. And then a little bit over here.
1: Yeah, like we don't get to have a reformation, a renaissance or there's any no, of those no intellectual movements. No, well, yes,
0: and, and that history actively edits people out. And it is always from the perspective of a couple of people and then everyone else is just background noise. Yeah. And that's not life. That's not anyone's everyday existence. That's not what history is, is, or is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so we are currently grappling with a way of actually talking about history differently. And that is why conservative states are like, you can feel them breathlessly trying to edit. It's like there's a whole new wave of this, and it's ultimately going to fail because it always does fail. And it should fail because as long as we are all here, there has to be a retelling of what actually happened. And it's not making anything up, it's actually adding. It is telling the truth, it is actually saying what happened. And we all will benefit from that whether people are scared of the truth or not, but I, I wanted to basically find a way to bring that into the telling of the book too, that history is personal and that, you know, it was a process to get the book to a point where I was writing it. My writing partner and I were writing it in the first person. It was controversial. To me, to do that, I was really scared of that idea.
1: Yeah, to bring yourself forward in that way.
0: To place myself into the telling of history. Right. That felt revolutionary. But then, you know, it was my mother who reflected to me. She's like, isn't that the point? Isn't, isn't that what you're doing? I was like, oh, yeah, no, you're right. It, it actually is what I'm doing. And and that is ultimately the lens with which this entire book is constructed. It is making a statement and a bold declaration that history is not data. It is personal. It is intimate. It's us. And we actually have to bring all of it closer to us. It's not like this man did this and then that happened and then, 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 then. It's like, this is what happened that led to this, which affects all of you mm-hmm. <laughs> right now. That is yeah. history.
1: Yeah. You know another another thing about this that's fascinating is also the role that, like the role of a drawing. You know we live in a we live in a multimedia world where you, one's creativity can be expressed through so many mediums, and only one of them is actually picking up a brush or a pen or a pencil or any other device to make art with. Mm -hmm. Does this telling of history and this, this personal association with history, is it enhanced by drawing and art as opposed to other media?
2: You were talking earlier about history being stored in nature.
0: And I was thinking about I think about it similar to the lines of a tree that nature reveals history all the time and I one of the reasons I'm keyed to the natural world in my art is that so many of the answers are there like we we you know indigenous cultures all over the world are are that's that's a common thread all over the world peoples who are really close to nature The answers are there. That's how you answer questions that are not tangible, that we all as human beings want to find answers to. And nature reveals history all the time. You see it in, you know, the most obvious one for the purpose of this conversation is the lines of a tree. It's all there. You can tell how old a
1: tree is by lines. Yeah, you can you can tell the rainfall, actually. You can tell weather patterns because of the thickness yes. of the bark accumulated over that year. There's uh, like uh, bark, the, the lines of trees also reminds me of uh, sediment layers that mm-hmm. you can see on. Say, I I remember the first time I went to Zion National Park and I saw the sediment layers and. That's history right there. You can tell so much has happened just by being able to read that color, read that texture, and the way that it plays against one another.
0: And you can see how young or old uh, something is um, just in plain sight. And you don't have to go into a library to answer so many of these questions. I mean, we've kind of reduced... And and I'm not... You know, it, in saying this, I'm not delegitimizing. Like the way that history is told is necessary. Uh, but that there should be some countervailing balance with how we are actually disseminating this information. It's not for a test, it shouldn't be just for a test, it should be for us to talk about. How these events affect us and impact our lives, and because that ultimately is what it's about. It's for us to learn of whether we're gonna going go around the loop again when we when we take that line around the tree. Are we doing the same thing, or are we doing it differently? Nature's always kind of it's layering. It's the sediment. It's the weather, it's the, you know, the, this the light. We we are all kind of here together and we're all trying to figure out what this life that we are living, what it means. A- and the answers are are still, they're there. You know, it, it's whether you're going to, it's de- it depends on how you want to think about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So well said um now taking a tangent i'm very curious about uh, something that i did as soon as i came to america and something that you did i think i don't know how soon you started it but it's certainly an aspect of your of your absorbing the american experience the american environment which was to sketch outdoors and to walk around with a sketchbook tell me a little bit about this now you mentioned that when you graduated you had this like you took this decision to move towards uh, you know take a pragmatic decision within your creative expressions i'm curious to know about how you kept you know these two counter these two uh, forces of friction alive in your mind like how did you sustain them over the years and the role that drawing from observation played in that in that game you know i i am i'm going to
0: answer it the same way you know i i have just always seen the twin paths of what I do and I, in the last 10 years, I've really honored that I don't need to have something figured out to do it, which is different than what our society tells us that we should be doing, that the process can reveal answers is what I believe. And I have enough examples of that in my daily life. It's not just in my art practice. That's one of the reasons my design practice is integrated with my art. You were asking me earlier about finding a balance. It's not, I, I don't know that I can answer it in that way. I, I, I've sought to integrate them, but I have not sought to balance them.
1: Right. That's an interesting distinction.
0: Yeah, I, I just, my my art practice is totally built in to my design practice. And now I am often the artist, as I was in this book, I am the artist of something that I'm designing. And so that means that I'm employing different skills, that they're working in concert with each other, that they're not the same thing, and that I can often work on them at the same time. You know, I... I am sitting here right now with my computer open, talking to you all around me. When I'm making art, I have my tools scattered all around me, all around my computer. And I can be on a client call, get off the phone, have 15 minutes in between one, you know, kind of professional, production call you know i'm talking to a client but then i have to talk to a printer in 15 minutes and i'm working on a mural and so i'm going to do the sketch i'm not going to get up and go to another table i'm going to do it right here and and i am working on a mural and that's what happened the other day i i was getting on the call i had the idea in my brain for months and because my time has not been my own I, and this you know, the other thing too. That's how integrated it is. I used to be stressed out that I didn't have the sketch ready, and I was like, "No, five minutes. I will. I will render it. It's that's easy. There's no. And it's just taking it out. And I picked up my pencil. I had a, a piece of paper. It wasn't even in my notebook. It was just a piece of paper. And I, I drew out the sketch. And then I got on the meeting, and there were seven people on the call. And I held it up on my screen. I was like, "This is how I'm thinking about it. These colors here, and then we're doing this here." Everyone was like, "That's amazing! That's fantastic!" I didn't have to, you know, as an art director, I would have felt the need to scan it in and present it, and present slides and a deck and blah 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 blah. And it's so integrated. I was like, "No, I don't. I don't need to do that. I just need to empty the contents of my brain to show you what I'm thinking." About. And then, and then I was like, okay, we're done, <laughs> we're done next meeting. And it's just that, that's simple for me. I, I, I don't have to, you know. typically I sketch everything out. And so I even, and as a graphic designer, that is what has changed. I sketch out my graphic design ideas, whereas You know, I used to tell people that they should sketch things out, but then I did not sketch things out. And now I sketch everything I do out. And it's just a really simple and powerful tool to just illuminate what it is that I'm thinking and share it. And it's amazing how it just kind of brings the conversation into focus. It really kind of sharpens how my collaborators and I discuss things. And it is now such an effortless part of my design practice. I look back and I think about all of the times that I overworked to present a single solitary idea and how much time I wasted overdoing something that was always pretty
2: simple.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, poets, uh, Charles Bukowski, uh, his uh, gravestone reads, don't try. And I
0: I believe in that, Nishant. I really, and I have no tolerance for people. Oh, I tried to do it. I was like, no, you didn't, because you're still talking about it. That's not, that's not trying. You you can do it, do it and fail or do it and succeed. But doing it is actually more important past a certain point of just talking about it.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like people take it as like, there is so much that we have been conditioned to take as negative, but all the positive is in that. Like the idea of not trying, it Im- immediately on the surface implies a negative reaction, like it's uh, you're asking people to not try, mm-hmm. but that's not what it means. It means really to to just to just do to do things, to not half measure things, yes, to not equivocate or to, or
0: to overthink or to overtalk. You know, there's a point where, in any design project I'm working on, at all, everyone hears me say, "Pencils down." we're done, we're done talking about this now. Now we're actually producing it. And we've had right. plenty of time to ideate and past a certain point, you're just stalling. And it's not actually serving this in any way. I, I believe in being thoughtful above anything else. I want to make sure that what I'm doing makes sense. I want to make sure that the, the space between words and visuals and their intention, the way that we're doing it and the process and uh, all of these things are really important, but the starting point has to be the intention. Mm-hmm. And then we actually have to bake the thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I sometimes think of even uh, in The Matrix, the first Matrix movie, uh, Morpheus tells Neo that stop trying to hit me and hit me. And uh-huh. what it means to really understand that statement is pretty much, pretty much exactly the same thing. Um, thinking again about process, thinking again about, you know, uh, doing the things that excite us and then we like leaving the result to the end without mm-hmm. a sense of the result to do those things. Tell me a little bit about how, uh, you know, drawing people in the world, like uh, your monthly column uh, with the Chronicle. I'm, I'm very curious about the motivation to do this thing and what uh, what you went into it looking for and what you found. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I started realizing early the first, the first assignment, the first project I did was the original illustrated black history project, which has culminated in this book that just came out. Mm -hmm. The second project I did was even more personal. It was my father being admitted to the hospital a year before he died. And I went to the hospital and documented the three days that I was there and I did 15 paintings and I was just kind of like, Oh, I think I do this now. (laughs) I remember finishing the last, the last piece from that series was a, a black and white wash of him. It was actually just gray ink on white paper and it was me holding my hand on his head as he slept. And it was such a perfect distillation of our relationship. My father and I had been estranged for 30 plus years. And I was witnessing him dying. And I, I, I documented how wrenching all of that was and what I was learning and just, uh, just all of it. And then after I was finished, I was like, oh, no, I think this is what I do. I think this is all I'm doing for the future, that I am focused on human identity, that I am obsessed with human identity. I'm obsessed with my own. I'm obsessed with yours. I'm obsessed with with hers, his, theirs. I actually, that's what I look around and I realize that, oh, this is what I've been studying the whole time. I've been alive and aware. And so a few things happened a few months later. I started just drawing and painting people around the city all the time. And I remember my partner at the time was just like, What are you going to do with this? You know, I'd taken the sabbatical and I was working on a few things, but basically, that first year, made no money, just nothing, just obsessively drawing and painting all the time. And there's a columnist for the New York times that I grew up that has actually, I've been really inspired by his work. And he's a photographer. His name is Bill Cunningham. And I was always really interested in his work because it took me years to find the language of it. I realized he was fascinated with identity. And he was ostensibly a fashion photographer, but not really. He was actually documenting human style and the identity that it formed. And I remember him equating that, like equating culture with high fashion. And I was just kind of like, oh, he understands that. I was like, fashion is fundamentally dishonest in that it does not say, it does not equate. It it equates this kind of European exceptionalism with high fashion. And it makes the same mistake in how we view history as basically, there are a few people that are incredible and then there's everyone else. Right, exactly. I was like, that don't make no sense. Yeah, um, and, 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 it's also really dishonest. And I was really fascinated by how Bill Cunningham always represented black style with high fashion.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: I remember thinking, oh, he's, he's, he's doing a trick and it's really complicated and it's beautiful. And it's, and he's still kind of telling a unique story. And then I remember he, he when he died, I, just in my brain, because I had these conversations with myself, and I was like, oh, I wonder who's going to take that, take that up. I wonder who's, who's going to do that. Just in a, in a really kind of broad, I was like, I wonder who the next person who's going to do that is. And then I woke up the next morning, I was like, I'm going to do that. It was, and it was just really clear. I was like, oh, this is the path that I'm moving towards. And not that I'm gonna be documenting fashion cause that's outside of my wheelhouse or my interests. I was like, oh, this is, I think this is what I can do. I think this is what I'm going to do. And so I, I pitched the San Francisco Chronicle in doing a culture column where I would go out and document aspects of Bay Area culture. And they said, yes, immediately. And, and so for several years, about five years, I, I, that's what I was doing. Um, and it, it, it basically was a study of the identity of the Bay area.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And, um, like I'm, I'm keen to know about the discovery process that's so inherent in this, you know, like. Uh, There is discovery as an artist as you put yourself in this situation that you are seeing something and now you have to do this really complicated business of not only seeing it, but also interpreting it in your mind, Mm -hmm. giving value to certain things like passing Mm -hmm. it through your own filters. What are the colors? What is the perspective? What do I like? What do I really look at? What do I not? What do I hold on to? And what do I let go? All of these decisions as an artist. And then like it has a very clear audience that it is going out to. So uh, what was this process like for you? Did, uh, did, it, did it open doors in your mind? Did it help you see things in a way that you did not before?
0: Absolutely. No, it, it, it basically this column got me ready to do this book. That, right. is, that is actually what happened. Mm-hmm. And I, I, the phrase I use in my life is case studies. Everything I do is a case study for the next bigger thing that I'm doing. Right. And, I, and that's the art director in me. Just kind of contextualizing. It's kind of like, why am I doing this? Oh, I'm doing this because I'm learning how to put three skills together that I've had that have been separate. Which is writing, illustrating under my own seam, and designing. And taking those two other components of the art and the words, and creating a package that are representative of the truth of what I have just seen,
1: right. so
0: that that was just kind of like, and in the first year of doing it i I got my book deal, and I remember thinking, "Oh, observed is getting me ready to do this
1: yeah that's that's such a great way to think about it because uh like it it also adds to this image that is so important I feel that we are really you know i like there's this phrase you know uh that uh if you follow your interest, blah blah blah, you're going to find yourself and there's this yeah. this this part of the phrase the finding yourself, I take a lot of objection to it, I hold that it's not that you're finding like finding yourself implies that you already <laughs> exist somewhere waiting for discovery yeah yeah right? like no, you're a, you're totally again, again a product finished. you're totally and
0: right, and it's also right. just kind of like like we're so far away from ourselves, you know it it kind of presupposes that every person is on this hero's journey, which is an entirely european fallacy exactly and it's the basis of existence. all
1: storytelling and all so these popular many stories,
0: ideas. so many stories like you have to fling yourself across the world to find yourself and it's like "Mm, not really true yeah
1: and you know you're you're there you're already there you just are waiting to be found whereas what i say is that it's not your business to find yourself your business is to create yourself yes and every day you add on to the monument of your life your own pyramid Every day, everything you try, every new challenge, every idea you pick up, everything you say to someone, it adds to who you are and what you are becoming and the various ways that you will then express yourself in the future. Yes, And this is sort of the abiding lesson that becoming an artist or the, the process of becoming an artist, it drilled into me. I come back to another phrase you use, which I just loved in the context of daily drawing was to grow from repetition. And people feel that you can't do that. You have to be doing something ingenious to grow. But the yes. idea of growing from reputation, tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, the, the tech industry is founded
0: on this kind of exceptional brilliance of like my single solitary idea launching into the stratosphere and changing the world. Um, it's so dystopian. Um, and it's, I find it's really cynical. Um, I think real life is much more boring than that, which is the truth of rituals. It is doing the same thing over and over and over and over. And every time you do it, you are actually learning a little bit more about your craft and about your community and about your family and your relationship to all of those things, mostly yourself. and. Um, and I knew this in an abstract way. The the truth is that I didn't know it as well as I know it now. It was abstract for me until six years ago, seven, seven years ago. It was, it was a totally abstract idea, but now I live it on a daily basis. And so I'm just kind of like, oh yeah, no, this is, this is where it's at you know it is actually sitting down and organizing and making lists and it's not it's not sexy you know it is it is not a single solitary brilliant idea it is sitting down and writing and then editing and then writing again or throwing away the thing that you've written because you've come up with a better idea and 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 sometimes it's changing it again and or putting it aside for five years and then coming back to it. It's, it art is a, also a question of timing. It's like, just because you have an idea does not mean it's the right time to do it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have learned this the hard way after berating myself for years and years about not capitalizing on the idea the moment it occurred to me. But uh, there's two aspects to this. Firstly, the idea that you will lose it. And yeah. so I fight against that. I have learned that it is silly. Nothing is lost. Everything right. stays with you, even if you don't consciously remember it. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the idea that someone is going to run away with it. It right. also implies like it it's a part of denigrating yourself, you know, mm-hmm. your own individuality that mm-hmm. somebody could just copy me or that essentially do the same thing or that I am replaceable. It's part right. of that idea, isn't it?
0: Right, right. Um, which comes out of fear, which comes out of fear. It's like, if I don't have the brilliant idea, then am I of value? Am I, am I worthy? You know, we, we, and I found myself in the same quagmire of just, you know, the first year I was like, am I worthy to do this book looking back? It's ridiculous that I was thinking that. It is absolutely. And I was, you know, towards the end of the, you know, no. Earlier than that, when I got my head right about it, I was like, I'm overqualified to be doing this. And I have represented that. And it sounds obnoxious to say, but that's not the context of what I'm saying. That I went from one extreme of feeling like I was so not the right person to do this and realizing I was like, why was I thinking about that? And and I had to move through that. I absolutely had to move through it to get there. But it's really silly now in retrospect. I was like, what What was I thinking? And, and it wasn't yeah. anything anyone else said. It was just me. Right, absolutely. Talking to myself, second guessing. I was like, there's so many other people that can do this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I find that that is, it's such a core part of your personhood that it spills over into all aspects of life. And I learned this about myself only from something completely unrelated to my writing and my art. I was preparing to run a half marathon and I ran it eventually during that, you know, 2020 first year of COVID. So there are no marathons. So I ran it alone by the lake shore in Chicago. Mm. And I realized having done it that what I do is I'm so terrified of failure that yeah. I run, I overprepare until the task itself becomes a little easier than it needed to be. Mm-hmm. And almost the challenge of doing it is reduced because I've overshot my, my preparation. I could have done it before. I didn't need to wait. And in the process of delegitimizing my ability to do it, I ran more laps than I technically needed to in order to be able to accomplish this
0: but it speaks to the point that we have returned to several times which is that we as human beings we learn by doing i think we the the idea that we learn by thinking um comes up to there's there's always like a point where that stops being efficient right that we, we cannot always think our way into solutions. Like we actually have to. And, and we, we de-emphasize the roles that our bodies play in our everyday life. And it's all this, that your brain matter is the highest form of your evolution. But I actually think that it is your body. It is the, the form that houses the brain. That is actually the dominant organism that we move through this world with. And that we, we, in giving ourselves over to movement and flow and form, like my best solutions come, I I walk out to my studio several, I, I, once again, it's not something I have the time to do right now, but during the pandemic, I started walking from my home to my, um, to my studio and it's a two-hour walk right and let me tell you nishant i would arrive with just i was like ready to cure cancer <laughs> i was bursting just kind of like oh, bursting with i would have my whole day mapped out i would know what the solutions were i would i would just arrive with a uh, just the frequency high excuse me high just mm-hmm. clarity, enthusiasm, excitement, and just like a groundedness in my body of just like, okay, I'm ready. And I would arrive, I would not speak to anyone during the meetings, but I would arrive. I was like, okay, I need to call this person, tell them this and this person, and just the flow, the flow, the flow, the flow. And I'm not talking about just like a walk, a five minute walk. I'm talking a two hour walk where my body is working with my brain. And I can feel the electricity.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, and it's, you know, it's a luxurious thing to be able to walk for two hours. But there are also a lot of people around the world that walk out of necessity because they've got to get from one place to the other. And those are the people who are actually doing things. And there's a there's a big difference between that. And it's really, it's powerful when you see it in action.
1: Yeah. And when we... Overvalue, value over emphasize the value of this of intellectual thought of mental activity i mean again we're sort of breaking down again this construct of fine art versus uh, you know art that lives in it's a community real. Right?
0: it's so true it's so true we, we really do and the because the bounds of you know i i myself have had to reevaluate i recently had a fine art show called reflected where i you basically too. Mush together my commercial art and fine art. And I remember a few people going to see it and just being like, what am I supposed to make of this? I had some type studies in there. I had some sketches. I had some portraits. I had, I had, and I had like fine art that I spent like months on. And I, it was basically all together. Right. And I was, I was like, this is another bold declaration i i am saying that i am not seeing these things as different mm-hmm. to me it is all part of the same continuum it's not what society tells me and you know the business of fine art is telling me that there's no way that your type renderings are worth as much as this portrait right and i i'm like yeah
1: you can You can say that, but from my perspective, right, exactly. I think that's that's the key right there, right? Like, uh, their being able to say that is it comes from this perspective of things that have value, and they like it used to be that this was the one world we had in which, hey, this is the kind of art that has value because galleries, because curators, because the history of art over the last three centuries in Europe has been this way. But once that's not the only way to get things done. Suddenly, you have this uh, this need to reestablish the order, right? Like, and part of that is to dismiss things that are outside of this story. So, for example, uh, I when I was growing up, I used to think it's so funny how India, having so much art, does not do fine art. Like, we don't have a culture of fine art. Like, people don't have a culture of putting paintings on their walls, signed by an artist in the bottom right. That's not our thing. So what does that say about us? Like, it, And when I was young, of course, having fewer ideas and lesser perspective, I thought, hey, we don't seem to care about art. That's so wrong. But it took me some time to understand and appreciate that art simply lives in our world in a different place.
0: That's it. So I feel there's the same fine way. art in
1: the clothes we make in India, right? And the bed sheets we put on it's, our beds. Yes, in the
0: homes, in the way that homes are designed. I feel the same way about the Caribbean. Right and it took me until my 40s to understand mm-hmm. i was like oh this is actually we have a much more integrated view of art than where i live in america it 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 is like you i walk around and i see basically the paintings is are the architecture mm-hmm. and there are handwritten hand painted signs everywhere and there's color and paint being used everywhere and i'm realizing oh this is actually one of the most creative places indeed i could have possibly been from because that's what basically
1: inspired my artistry it because and it because it was such an indelible part of your life you couldn't see it as separate yeah. from your life Yes. And, and the and, notion and like of you, art being a thing that you go to a gallery or a museum to look at and right. it is behind glass and you can never right. touch it and it can never right. you can never hold it in any sense. And or, hold it, you can't get close to it, that it's cloistered away. And almost that it's it has value from its scarcity, right? So because this is the original drawing by Leonardo da Vinci, it has hundreds of millions of dollars of value. And because this Beautiful, gorgeous print is made for all of these bed sheets and curtains and cushions and whatever things. The way the fabric arts are practiced in my country, therefore, it has less value because it is commonly available and it is such a twisted, definition, a very particular. Well, I won't. I don't want to say twisted, but it's a very particular definition of value. It is. It is that particular. doesn't need to be
0: the only way. But Nishant, we're also trapped in the yoke of that too, because that is basically. That is the world that we are both inhabiting as artists is that the whole world around us is conditioned to accept fine art as elevated and commercial art as street level.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's basically the two. And the worlds have gotten a little bit
2: closer, but not
0: all that much. And and it begs the larger question of, how we as society value art, you know, this whole kind of um, Eurocentric way of viewing art, like we're, we're stuck with it for a while. Like it's not, it's not changing anytime soon, no matter how many black people end up in the MOMO or the SF MoMA, like that, this is still the overall structure that we are in. Mm-hmm. And, and it. And it hasn't changed. There's too much money to be made the way it is for it to change anytime soon. You know, but I find on the ground floor of the careers of people like you and I, it's going to take a few more generations to kind of unravel this nonsense because it is going to be, you know, it's going to take hold in teenagers and folks in their 20s that when people are not interested in being featured in the (laughs) MoMA and the Whitney. That's when it's going to change indeed it still is you know the apex to be placed in these institutions. it is still yeah. rendering
1: it is still yeah.
0: it is still the desire
1: yeah, and as long as our path of success sort of upholds the institutions mm-hmm. that's the only direction in which it is that's, agreeable that's it that's yeah. it, and so as long as that is the case,
0: as long as people think that being in a museum is the the hypothesis of their ex- their you know their well, creative the expression, of what,
1: yeah, the tangible idea of success, the tangible I idea, of success, then then it's just going to continue like that, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, George, I have so many questions, and I feel like we could keep going on because we are just we uh, yeah, we're just uh, we're just uh, t- moving from ideas to ideas. But I'm sensitive to your time. And I want to wrap this up with one thing that I am curious about still yes. that I would love for you to say. Yes. Um. Now, you have expressed yourself as a writer. You have a book out there and in it you're an artist and now you've gone through the cycle of making a book. Mm-hmm. But you've also expressed yourself, your creative expression in so many other different things that have different life cycles, that have different mm-hmm. sci- uh, life cycle, meaning not only the creation, but also how soon it is appreciated, the context in which it is, it reaches its desired audience and that right, audience right. imbibes it. How do you feel about writing in, in consideration to all of this experience? Does it excite you? Does it feel like something that you would want to do again and again? Or does it feel like something that is just part of the many things that you want to keep doing?
0: Well, thankfully, I was writing a lot when I decided that I was going to be one of the co-writers, I, I was not originally supposed to be the writer of the book because I'm not a glutton for punishment. And I, and I, when I first got my book deal with HarperCollins, I did think it was one too many things. And I did not think that I had the pedigree as a writer. And, and what that means is not someone else's idea of that, but it was mine. I didn't think that, and, and I am a writer and, and so it, it wasn't that I didn't think I could do it, but I thought that someone else would do it better. And that to me was more important for the subject matter of this book. I didn't want it to feel like the other two were, were rendered and one, and the other one was kind of at a layer underneath. I didn't, you know, the other two were professional. I didn't want the third to be an amateur. Endeavor. And that also is the art director in me. I was like, it has to be good. No matter how much time it takes, it has to be good, purely. It just needs to be good. Um, and so my co-writer and I, as we became co-writers in the process of her drawing from my own research and my own perspectives. I started to see things that I was saying inside of the initial words that she was writing and so it just like our process just ended up fusing and then I was writing too and we were going back and forth and it was this really effortless flow between the two of us um and so that's that's kind of what it what it became and but At that point I was already in my column. My column was evolving in that I was writing essays. I was writing cultural essays for the Chronicle and where the, the column wasn't just me going out to events. It was actually me writing about, uh, the layers of complexity in, you know, I was writing about grief and death and, you know, uh, I was just writing about a lot of things. And so once again, it's something I haven't had a lot of time to do, but I'm actually starting to get back into it again. And I'm going to be writing a lot. The next book I, I do, I'm going to be writing myself. And so I'm already kind of in that headspace where I am, I'm writing many times a week for this idea that is going to take me years to finish.
1: All right. That's that's lovely. And it sounds so, I mean, I would say optimistic, but it's so driven by, you know, just your natural processes. Again, it's driven by your curiosity and that curiosity is evolving and it is taking and you process. in new directions. And yes. I just love how all of this sounds. Yes. Thank you so much, George, for giving me so much of your time today.
0: Nishant, this was absolutely wonderful. I loved, and we could just kept on talking i think so i do think so we could just keep talking and and (laughs) i sense that you think very similarly about process and so there's a lot of symmetry in our um, artistic expression also